Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Chris, ma'am, we are united in person over a chocolate rose. It's and where a piece we're supposed to be. Cake. Yes, exactly. How, <laughs> this is how, where where God intends us to right. be. That's right. Manning the boards like Rick Rubin. We've got Colin Chicola over there. Life is good. The pastries are present. We're liking it. Colin, by the way, like never takes part in our pastries, and I don't know. Makes he's, me suspicious, Colin. He's br- he's br- he's here. Colin, what say you? I haven't found the right one yet. Oh, don't hurt me like that. He's uh, he. You should know he's wearing a wooden buttoned, uh, <laughs> like uh, chamois shirt. Looks like L- vintage yellow being bought at a hipster store. He's got a vacuum flask. He looks like he's ready to take an outward bound class uh, <laughs> to New Hampshire. So just be. This does not look like a guy who's going to waste empty calories on anything. Colin like has this. Gorp. His bag of Gorp <laughs> over there that he's snacking up. Oh, <laughs> uh, we should not taunt. We should not taunt. There was this camp. I'm from Minnesota, and mm-hmm. there was this camp that all of the bougie kids went to where they paid a lot of money to like carry canoes and poop in the woods and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. called Widgie Wagon. Widgie. Colin is like ready to Looking, get in his Subaru and energy. drive to Widgie. Yeah. And eat, eat Gorp. I of course never attended Widgie. I was like, I want to, you know, stay home and play, play video games. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sure you were just slacking off every summer as you were taking your fourth super I elective. I was going to like gifted and talented. Yeah, I was going to say exactly. <laughs> my, my, my 10th grade internship. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> exactly. I know you, I know you chick. I know you chick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to uh, take a moment to, and I apologize if my voice is a little reedy. I finished my audio book today and 12 hours alone in a room reading a book makes a person crazy. And hopefully my voice will hold out. I've given it too much work. But I want to say thanks to my new colleagues at News Nation. I signed a, a deal with them this week. It was in the LA Times, the great Steve Battaglio. We are going to link oh, the announcement okay. in our show notes. Your title is... Political Pol- editor. Political editor. I've been a politics editor since I was 28 years old. I'm going to ride it out. I'm, I'm I'm approaching two decades. Chris like came out of the womb as polit- as a politics editor. This this will not affect my work at the American Enterprise Institute or the Dispatch, other than to make it even better. What and, about here at Angstained Wretches? Well, obviously the flagship, the corner, the corners, the unremunerated cornerstone. I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> the un, unremunerated cornerstone of my career. No, I do love I do love it, of course. So, But I just wanted to say it's so great to be back with Sherry Gretsch, who was the director of politics at Fox. I love to work with her, love the team. And, if I may say, I was enjoying not being on cable news, I will confess, because there's a lot of push-me-pull-me, and when you go to do the segment, you know what the producer's looking for, you feel the pressure, and there's a... There's a the performative part of it, and it was I, – I had some, I think as the kids would now say, some trauma at, attached to that, but it was, a, it was a, a sore spot for me. But I realized that if News Nation is really trying to do nonpartisan, fair Well, hold on news, a second. Yeah. Tell us, like, the elevator pitch about News Nation. Well, it's on the platform of WGN, and over the next year they're moving to 24 hours a day. Right now they've got evening and they've got primetime and morning – Morning show, I've done it a few times, is quite good. It, it, and mostly morning television makes me feel like my brain cells are being, like I've, like I've been given ether. The, they're actually quite good. And it, it's Do good. we know the hosts? I, don't, I have not met everybody yet. I've done everything remotely. But the idea is basically that there is an underserved market for people who want uh, high-quality television news 24 hours a day but don't want it to be partisan and don't want it to be siloed. And unfortunately, the siloing and partisanship is a much easier path to profits. So what they're doing is very ambitious. And if I, 
I guess the 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 convincing pitch to me was that if I want to be if I want to complain about what's wrong with media, I have to do something with what's right with media. And I, I'm very happy to get to do it. Tune in, everyone. That's right. After the Cubs game, there will be. On the front page. We have a lot to talk about this week. First up, we would be remiss if we did not talk coverage of the horrific mass shooting in Texas. So... We're here not to talk the politics of it, but the media coverage of it. Yeah, and I, I, I want to say profit-taking, you know, we're not getting paid doing this. People who, but co- coverage of a tragedy of this magnitude for profit is gross. Exploiting it for political advantage for individuals is gross or for celebrity is gross. So I want to just say at the beginning, you know, we are obviously as parents, you know, as, as humans, we are affected by this and we are... We are joined join in the rest of the country that nothing feels quite right this week, right? Everywhere you go, there's something a little amiss, and then you remember uh, a crime of this uh, magnitude. So let's just, you know, I want, you, I want everyone to know that we're keeping it in that context. The coverage, I have a take. You, you've thought it was good? I have a take, <laughs> but, but you have first take. Well, I think, I assume, I have not, we've not talked about this, but I assume you agree with me that the coverage has been gross and hyper-political. Is that right? For sure. I mean, mostly the idea that, you know, if we don't do something, i.e. pass legislation, like we are not honoring the memory of dead children. And that there's, I mean, Morning Joe is probably the worst offender. That Make that a hot You know, key. you have blood on your hands if, if you don't favor passing legislation or you have failed to pass legislation and that that's doing something. And did you tell me something you saw on CNN or someplace that somebody was really off the off their? Oh, nut? oh! I loved. Hold on, I sent it to myself. I loved. I was reading the Brian Stelter newsletter, which I kind of like hate read because it's always oh like gosh. so fun to read. Oh my gosh! And he has. I sent to myself circled in pink. He has <laughs> all this commentary, and this is just you know, he writes one of Sean Hannity's banners tonight. Democrats ignore gun violence in major cities, which is basically true Um, and then Hannity and many of his allies keep bringing up Chicago dot 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 no explanation of why people might keep you know bringing up Chicago and of course like the conservative political point is you know cities with strict gun laws suffer a lot of violence nonetheless and like we don't need to litigate the point but I just love like the offered with absolutely no context and we're just all supposed to understand that oh Sean Hannity's an idiot and and this and that. There's a so, there's, uh, there's a so, such bad faith. There's a social uh, psychological. These kinds of mass killings are new, relatively speaking, to human history. Anybody who knows about history at all knows that lots of murder and lots of death. Our 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 history is a bloody and violent one over all time. I I understand the the social psychological phenomenon of the murder of children or mass murders in general being more affecting, but certainly it is true that the crime, especially Chicago and other places, you know, St. Louis, other big cities, the gun deaths get a different, I, I, I think talking about the gun laws, I can see the rebuttal on the gun laws that people say, well, you bring them in from, you know, you have tough gun laws in the city, but you can bring them in from the other states. Yeah, it's a debate. It's a debate. Uh, it's a debate to be had, but I love the stelter thing that no context on, you know, proponents say X and critics say Y, and here's what the debate is. It's just, you know, right. oh, the, here's what asinine how da- right. how dare you? says. But, uh, I, but, I, but I do think the interesting part of the discussion here from a coverage standpoint is why don't we see more coverage about the urban crime epidemic and gun crime epidemic, right? I, I, I'm I not an idiot. I know why a mass shooting of children gets more coverage than the day-in and day-out grind of gun violence, uh, a lot of it black-on-black crime. But the, the the degree to which that is ignored is significant and, and fair criticism. You wanted to talk about the filibuster. Well, I don't want to talk about the filibuster, but lordy day do people want to talk about the filibuster. As if somehow the Senate filibuster didn't exist, that this would not have happened. I want to quote to you Ron Brownstein writing in The Atlantic. Who has, like, gotten radicalized. Oh, for sure. 
Ron Brownstein uh, is definitely he is. What is the opposite of red pilled? Blue pilled. Blue, he's blue pilled. <laughs> does this make him woke and not based? He's, he's blue pilled. Yes. He's, okay. He's, he's been blue pilled. He's been. I like that. Okay. So Brownstein says he's like, why don't we have gun control to stop things from like this happening? And he says that's because gun control is one of the many issues in which majority opinion in the nation runs into the brick wall of a Senate rule, the filibuster that provides a veto over national policy to a minority of the states, most of them small, largely rural, predominantly white, or preponderantly white, and dominated by Republicans. Now, Ron, Bubby, when these states were Democratic, was the filibuster okay? When these state, if the states were uh, minority majority, would they be okay? What are you talking about? The idea that if the threshold, first of all, Joe Manchin is a thing, and if the threshold for passing legislation in the Senate was fifty-one votes, well, let, let me go. I'm sorry to do this, but let me go two clicks back. Part of the problem that opinion mongers have on this issue is the things that would be necessary to do conceivably to have an effect on gun violence in the United States would require a constitutional amendment, right? Even the most liberal justice on the Supreme Court would tell you that Second Amendment protections being what they are, you would need a, a mandate from the people, right? You would need a amendment to the Constitution to confiscate guns, to ban the sale of guns, to really crack down in a way that could conceivably have any effect. There are more guns than people in the United States. So the idea that somehow closing the gun show loophole, which isn't really a thing, but whatever, but that private sale, closing the loophole on private sales or the other things that have been proposed would somehow affect this, right? The, the killer here, there was no new law that allowed him to do this. Uh, you would have to go back and, and really fundamentally change the structure of things. But they don't want to talk about that. Instead, what they say is that somehow, if you could get some assault weapons ban through the Senate on 51 votes, that it would make all the difference. First of all, I don't think that's true because I don't think Joe Manchin would go along with anything that would be bold, even if you could overcome constitutional problems, that would be bold enough to try to, try to change some of this stuff. Talking, using this to talk about, pardon me, book throat, using this to talk about the filibuster, this cuckoo banana at the American Prospect, I know, that's nut picking. I hear you out there, David French. If I'm reading the American Prospect and talking about it as the mainstream media, it would be wrong, but I'm not. I'm just saying here's where it is. Here's the headline. The Senate has forfeited its right to exist. Well, now, that seems pretty bold, sir. That seems like a pretty bold take to me. The filibuster is not the reason for this killing. The filibuster is not the problem with minority voting rights. The filibuster is the threshold in the Senate for advancing legislation. And it is interesting that it's much easier, whether you're Donald Trump or Ron Brownstein, that the answer when your opinions can't succeed is to say, we should change the rules so that I can have my way with 51 votes. The answer is, and this is true for gun control, but it's also true for the things like the Electoral Count Act and changes to voting laws and ways to prevent a 2020 scenario in 2024, you have to reach out to the other side and find a way to get something done that you can get Republicans to back. That's the story. Can I just say, and and I'm jumping ahead and skipping mm -hmm. over an item, this is the same thing they do rather than saying, my opinions are not popular and... So there's a reason that Joe Manchin isn't going to vote for X, Y, or Z. It's because his constituents don't support it. So even if the polls are showing X, Y, and Z, if that was the true feeling of the voters, then legislation would pass to do that because it would be so popular that representatives, senators would vote for this stuff. Yes. Um, number two, if they can't blame the rules they blame the representatives right in a different way by saying they are bought and paid for by the nra and this that's actually why it's not the rules it's that they're not voting for this because they're in the pocket of the nra and 
This stupid explanation, I wanted to play a montage of the continual blaming of the NRA, even as the NRA is like tied up in court battles, is a shambles, has totally declined as a force in American life. Let's play that. Now that the Republican Party will never waver when it comes to their utter and supine devotion to the gun lobby. It should also come as no surprise that the vast majority of them line their pockets with money from the NRA while actively ignoring the majority of Americans. All of them following the NRA blueprint uh, to deflect and distract. Or some other people want to say that they were being held hostage by the NRA, but I think that they are joined at the hip with the NRA because it is good politics for Republicans. And Chris, I just wanted to pull from a Stephen Gutowski article. Gutowski is a former Free Beacon reporter who's gone off to write a substack about guns at The Reload. And Gutowski writes in this article, this was last year in 2021, in the 2020 election cycle, the NRA contributed less than $1 million directly to candidates. That made it the 996th largest donor for the cycle, according to Open, Open Secrets. It spent $5.4 million lobbying in the same time frame, which put it a bit higher at 169th. Since 2012, the NRA's highest contribution ranking has been 294th, and its highest lobbying ranking has been 85th. That's okay, right. not a major force in American life. It has declined precipitously over the past five years. Because of- and nonetheless, <clears throat> like these politicians need a political scapegoat for why their views are unpopular and why what they propose to do, which is like seize the guns out of the hands of law abiding gun owners, is not politically feasible. That's right. The movie Bowling for Columbine by Michael Moore had a theory that the NRA was a continuation of the Ku Klux Klan by other means and that the reason that the America had mass shootings was because the NRA, also known as the Klan, was preventing popular gun legislation from passing. But the truth is, and this is also true of abortion, this is true of a lot of things, public opinion is much more complicated, much more complicated. Americans are pro-gun but also pro some limitations on guns, depending on how they're asked. It's not a straight line. Now, look, I think in Texas, they've got a real problem on their hands with the gun lobby in general and in the primaries. So, for example, Greg Abbott put forward uh, a suite of legislation after the 2017 school massacre in Texas that they bottled up stuff in it that had to do with, like, liabilities for people who did not secure their weapons properly and and things to encourage more gun safety and stuff like that, that again was coming from Greg Abbott. And that stuff got killed in the Texas state house. So the, and those are things that would not be, that would be very popular, right? The gun lobby is, is now decentralized. It is a strong opinion in the Republican primary electorate, but the idea of the NRA as a boogeyman will not die in the mainstream press. They need it. Yeah. It's the mainstream press and in the Democratic Party. It was Chuck Schumer. It was Joe Biden. They need it in order to explain the, I don't even know if this is the word, unfeasibility and unpopularity of what they actually propose to do, which they cannot say. That's right. They can't, well, they cannot say, and they also can't say, and this is the two, this is the two things together. Democrats don't want to say what they want to do or what would be necessary. So they want to say, well, we propose these intermediate solutions about gun registration or whatever. And then the, why won't these things pass? Well, it must be the big boogeyman of the NRA because otherwise uh, everybody would clearly agree with us if it were not for their clout. This would be like- Or the filibuster. This would be like Republicans saying- Once a one-two punch. That's right. That would be like Republicans saying- the reason that people are in favor of keeping Roe v. Wade is because it's Planned Parenthood's fault. So we had, before we had this terrible shooting, we had primary day mm-hmm. in Georgia, in Texas, and elsewhere. And I was amused that, and we will we will link the piece, that in 2020, 
Mm-hmm. Or I guess it was 2021, early 2021, on the heels of the 2020 election, Georgia passed this new voter law that kind of tightened things up after after the 2020 election and COVID, COVID you know, some loosey-goosey COVID rules. And we did a piece on this at the Free Beacon, but I'll read you some of the headlines from 2020. And you'll recall the All-Star Game moved out of Georgia. Uh, we have an NPR headline. DOJ says Georgia's new voting law restricts the black vote. ABC News, the new Jim Crow, Republicans and Democrats at odds over voting rights. The Hill, Georgia election law prevents African America, Latinx, others from exercising the right to vote. And on and on and on and on. Well, Georgians went to the polls on Tuesday. They voted at exorbitantly higher rates than ever before. And... I don't think I really saw any headlines celebrating this event or retractions of the histrionic, gaslighting, abominable coverage of the 2021 law. Early voter participation rose more than 150 percent across the board and early voting among black voters is higher than ever before. You know, the. This is a. Part of the same thing where Joe, Joe Biden compared Kirsten Cinema to what was it to Jefferson Davis, and that you know the and Bull Connor and Republicans, yeah, well, yeah, and Bull Connor Please. for opposing the ill-conceived, poorly executed basket of election laws that they were trying to push through, and they really went to the extremes on this and 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 said all that stuff. And again, I'm sure I've mentioned it here before, but the fact that Senate Democrats didn't have not found a way to work with very willing Republican senators on an Electoral Count Act to get that through, to take obvious steps to make sure that Donald Trump in 2024 or one of his acolytes can't, you know, try to steal the election again and all that stuff. There's the good faith just isn't, you know, it's it is it is evidently not there. That's not to take the pressure off Republicans. They shouldn't be doing more on their own, but geez Louise. And then as you say, the election comes and turnout's up and it's way, way up. And we say, well, how is this possible given the draconian uh, new Jim Crow? And the answer is this stuff works. This stuff works for Stacey Abrams. Now, I don't think it's going to work to make her the governor of Georgia, uh, but this stuff works for Stacey Abrams. This stuff works for Democrats on fundraising and anxiety stoking, but is, of course, disconnected from reality. There are things to be concerned about in some of this Republican legislation, namely about vote counting, but not about vote casting. I have voting has never been easier in America. And but the media aids and abets it. That's constantly. the problem. Yes. They do not characterize it as a campaign or political tactic by Democrats or a, you know, if it was a Republican, it would be like fact checked, fact checking the Jim Crow 2.0 claims. Five Pinocchios, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. It is not characterized that way. That is correct. I think we talked about this as we go, as we as we went, but I want to just, of course, I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to point out how right I was and say, when we watched the Ohio primary results at the beginning of May, we were told about Donald Trump with his Midas touch. We were ta- we talked about Donald Trump and his power in the Republican Party. It's Trump's party now. I mean, it was a waterfall, and, and you can go back and listen to the episode, but the amount of attention that was given to Trump's power in the Republican primaries was crazy. You know my joke, which is the uh, one thing that Donald Trump, the Democrats, and the press agree on is that Donald Trump should be the focus of every story. And you could say in... Ohio, that a timely pick of a talented candidate in J.D. Vance was good for Vance. It was good for Trump. It looked good. That was the kind of endorsement that politicians love to make. It was well-timed and it paid off. And Trump had sort of successfully built a media narrative around his gifts as an endorser because he didn't endorse in tough races. He did endorse in races where it looked like, you know, there was a MAGA incumbent running essentially unopposed, but he wasn't picking against incumbents. He wasn't doing the stuff. So he was strategically good. And then we got in the second half of May and Trump has stunk up the joint, right? It is, you know, the Oz pick enraged a quarter of 
Pennsylvania's Republican voters who back Kathy Barnett in opposition. The lieutenant governor, Janice McGeechan, in Idaho got stomped by Brad Little, despite uh, the incumbent, despite Trump's enthusiastic backing. Charlie Herbster in Nebraska got thrashed. And then the big one, which was, of course, Brian Kemp, which was Trump's called shot. So he Trump devoted all this money. I mean, he actually took money out of his super PAC. If you can get Donald Trump to take money out of his super PAC. Is that know, like the Al Gore lockbox? Yeah, that it is like, it's a lockbox <laughs> in a lockbox. Exactly. <laughs> and he never Trump is Trump eats alone. And he put money into it. They had rallies. And not only did Kemp win, but Brad Raffensperger. And this is the really significant one. Brad Raffensperger, who was the guy that Trump tried to basically, he told he, him. He was on the other end of that, that, that perfect phone call. You need to find. The domestic perfect yes, phone call. Yes, you need to find 10,900. That's all we're asking you yeah. to do is find <laughs> some votes. You look around and see if you can see some votes. It's, it's a light lift. Brad Raffensperger cruised to re-election over Jody Heiss, congressman who was challenging him. So then the press is like, oh, so Trump is out and Pence is in? You're like, no. And I say this all the time, and I would just tell any journalist unfortunate enough to be Inkstained Wretch's listener, I would just tell them, elections are more about voters than they are about candidates. They're about the people and what the people want. And Donald Trump is a big, famous, orange person, and he is a celebrity, and he can drive a lot of clicks and a lot of coverage. Think about the voters more than you think about the candidates. Think about the voters first you will be a better predictor and prognosticator, but also you'll see things more clearly. Think about the voters first. Speaking of this, I I really enjoyed a column by my friend Jason Willick at the Washington Post. He's a new columnist over there. I recommend his stuff to everyone. Chris hates the Washington Post, but I'm going to give I, them a plug. I'm working for, on it. For I'm Jason Willick. But he... His column is to the effect that, you know, in these Republican primaries, it, it's it's kind of hard. So so the headline is as follows. Why Trump's 2024 chances are even worse than Georgia suggests. Oh, yeah. And he basically writes that something along the lines that, you know, all the candidates are Trump candidates now. And so it's it's kind of hard to say, like, what is Trump's influence? Because his influence is baked in the cake. But I liked this. And he goes back and quotes the historian Richard Hofstadter. And I'm quoting quoting from Jason. Yeah. Major parties have lived more for patronage than for principles, Hofstadter explained. They are risk-averse organizations designed for stable governance. Populists and third parties, meanwhile, are not geared to govern, but to, quote, agitate, educate, and supply the dynamic element in our political life. These two forces, steady and disruptive, influence one another so that when, quote, a third party's demands become popular enough, they are appropriated by one or both of the major parties and the third party disappears. Yeah, this is this is. And the- so he basically says Trumpism has been appropriated by Republicans. Most of these candidates are now Trump candidates. And that will make it difficult for Trump. He's not going to be unique if he runs in the Republican field again. Like, everybody's going to be a Trump candidate. And I don't know if he's right, but I thought it was a really interesting so argument. It's, it's Hofstetter's line about that third parties are like bees. Yes. Uh, they sting, they have their effect, and then they die. And I think that is, uh, to a substantial degree, true uh, with the MAGA, MAGA movement. It, it Trump uh, brought extra force to the populist sort of eschatological, apocalyptic wing of the Republican Party, sort of the, the those guys. But I would also say this. Trump's advantage in 2016 running for president was that he was the wild man, right? He was the crazy guy. You didn't know where he was going to go. You didn't know what he was going to do. He'd reverse himself on an issue in a minute uh, to go to where the voters were. He would uh, ditch an opinion and people would be trying to hold him down to it. And he'd sprint away. He was unpredictable. The hidebound campaigns couldn't deal with him. I look at Trump now and I see a MAGA Jeb Bush, right? I see a guy who is the, everybody knows him. He's overstaffed. He's overfunded. MAGA Jeb Bush is like a great nickname for one of, you know, for DeSantis to pin to Trump. He, and, and and the problem is, and Trump does not know this yet, and he's learning it now through the primaries, and there's been some good coverage uh, in the Washington Post and elsewhere about the change in tone from Trump and in his circle. 
he does not have freedom of movement anymore, right? He can't just go to where he thinks the voters are. He has uh, an organization. He has commitments. He has a very well-defined brand as opposed to eight years ago when it was whatever, right? Like whatever I think I am today is what I am. What do we have next? More excellence, I assume. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out Stu Varney. I want to give some love here to Stuart Varney from the Fox from the Fox Business Network and his very posh accent. Okay, let's hear Stuart Varney in a phoner with Donnie from Queens. Let's go. Well, what I hear from a lot of Republicans is that they don't want you to look back to the 2020 election and rehash it. They want to look forward to what we're going to do with this economy and this society going forward. What do you say to that? Well, I do that, but if you don't study what happened and if you don't find out, we know what happened. All you have to do is see 2,000 mules or go on, on truth. Take a look at truth. You should someday talk about truth as a, a business thing. It's, it's hot that, as a That's pistol. not what truth people are talking so, about. People, people don't want you to do that. So here is Varney saying what a lot of Republicans are saying. To, so there, there are some, let's call this the Kathy Barnett What's the name of the Republican gubernatorial nominee in Pennsylvania? Mastriano. Um, Mastriano. So there are people who, on election stuff, I like hot as a pistol. That's good. <laughs> That's really good. I kind of want to put that in our in our intro. Truth social. Well, hot That's as a pistol. Really That's good. right. But truth social. Getting a plug in for truth social and election theft. So the there are people like the Kathy Barnett, Doug Mastriano, who are beyond Trump on steel stopping and all of that stuff. But most Republicans, I think, or a plurality of Republicans are over where Stuart Varney is and is talking about here, which is whatever you think happened in 2020, why would you still talk about it? Like, why would you keep talking about this issue? It's not good to talk about. It doesn't help. And I would just give kudos to Varney, who's got a phoner with Trump, which in typical, the typical Fox business move there, the, if it, we'll put it this way, if it was Maria Bartiromo, it would have been, Mr. President, how no she would just call him she she would she would you know our commandante why are how how many Chris days is totally in exile watching this joke no right how now. many how many oh damn <laughs> i'm sorry i was distracted by you constantly kicking your chair um, but if it, if it was maria, i'm making it impossible for chris to think by kicking my chair if it was maria bartiromo she would say you know el comandante how many days in exile is it now for you when will you How's be, Elba? Yeah, when will you be rightly returned to the throne? Uh, <laughs> here's Stuart Varney uh, saying what a lot of Republicans are thinking, and also from a political analysis standpoint, what is simply correct? How is this possibly helping Republicans? Okay, this is the corollary to my Jim Crow 2.0 thing, mm-hmm. which is this was plastered from wall to wall everywhere, and then now it's provably false, and we don't hear a peep about it, which is the... Michael Sussman trial, which is the shoe dropping on the uh, Russia coverage, and John Durham trying this Perkins Coy lawyer, Michael Sussman, for lying to the FBI. And it's a narrow charge, but it is in the trial exposing how the Clinton campaign and their attorneys peddled the Russia, the Trump-Russia story mm-hmm. to the media and to the FBI as opposition research, et cetera, et cetera. And it shows that all these stories the mainstream ran that basically came from the Clinton campaign were wrong. And the mainstream is covering it, but obviously it doesn't have... We, it's not in the same cadence and at the same volume as we got the Trump-Russia story. And I'm just going to like, you know, I'm like the, I don't know, banging my shoe or like banging my, I don't even know what I'm banging, but I'm banging something. Your, at your shoe. The lack of accountability. <laughs> yeah, my shoe. That's the lack of banging. accountability for getting this stuff all wrong. And like, again, the Times and the Post won Pulitzer Prizes for their reporting on this stuff. That was B to the S. The it's uh, the Sussman trial is not. Get, I'm I'm gonna grade on a curve because we've had a lot of news in the past couple of weeks, and the, it's it's competed for space. But I'm sure you're right that even without it, it wouldn't have gotten much more than it that it that it does. 
and I'm just glad that the Justice Department is following through on cleaning up after this mess, and that's a good thing. Well, maybe we'll see it on Rachel Maddow one of these days, but I won't hold my breath. I won't hold my breath. I thought she's is she leaving. Is she's that only right? on once a week, so, you know, limited time. <clears throat> what, limited what? time to cover her mistakes. She, she's down to once a week? Yeah, it's every Monday, I think. Who Who is the rest of the week? I don't know. We got to find out. We got to get. We got to get our best people on this, Colin. We got to can use your canoe and ride. Paddle over. <laughs> get the canoe down from the roof of your Subaru and paddle over to wherever there's an M- MSNBC is on and bring us back the report. I'm on it. <laughs> we, you thought you were through with COVID, Chris, and and monkeypox. I, I coming. I just want to say, if you've ever been to a rave sex orgy in Europe <laughs> that was wild enough to introduce monkeypox into, in, into the West. Yeah, you just, I mean, you are, you're, that's a next level party lifestyle. Can I just say. Charlie Sheen is looking at you like, getting it done. You're getting uh, it done. Can I just say, my daughter is 4.5 months. There are no rave sex orgies happening in my household, within like you know, probably ten square miles of my household. Call Madison Cawthorn. He knows there, what there he are knows none where happening. He knows he knows where it's going on. Uh, in I just, fact, last night I wanted to like get. I said to my husband, like, "Don't you just want to get in the baby's crib?" And he looked at me and he's like, "No, no, I don't." I said no. No, <laughs> I did. <laughs> like because you're so tired, or because you just want to snuggle with her? Both. Oh, but I was so tired. Oh well, I just. I'm 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 working on being more loving towards the Washington Post, but I must say that this story was shockingly stupid, which is as monkeypox panic spreads, doctors in Africa see a double standard, and the story is about how. Uh, well, I'll read you this graph: the virus discovered five decades ago in the Democratic Republic of Congo causes mild illness in most people, along with blisters that usually clear up in weeks. He said. It's much less transmissible than the coronavirus and much less deadly than Ebola. There's already an effective vaccine. What bothers infectious disease experts across the continent is the double standard that has emerged since monkeypox grabs the world, grabbed the world's attention. Few seem to care or even notice until people in the West started getting sick. Oh, my gosh, that somehow this is racist or colonial or something that people in the West where the disease did not exist. Can I just say... Really quick. Hugh Hewitt, I was on his radio show. He asked me about coronavirus when, before it was in the West, it was in China. And I was like, Hugh, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, I guess guilty as charges both on both counts. Well, and- also, what did he, did he ask you about the nuclear triad? Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Alger Hiss. And Alger, Hiss. Was Alger Hiss, yeah. So, the... It is not surprising that people in the West are more concerned about monkeypox with monkeypox. When it comes pox, to the West, West yeah. yeah. It is not surprising that people in the West are more concerned about monkeypox when monkeypox is in the West. The Democratic Republic of Congo has a median income of $669 a year. There are lots of terrible problems in the Democratic Republic of Congo and lots of Central African nations that would break the heart of any this American. Is so amazing. Would break the heart of any American if it were if it, there as a matter of sympathy. But if the same conditions were brought to the United States, people would be outraged, shocked, and concerned. It, 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 there is a massive disparity in wealth and all of these things that are true, but that doesn't mean that we in the West are neglectful or cruel in not in caring about things more when they affect us. This is the kind of obsession with. I, I, last night I was walking out. <laughs> you know you're living in Washington when last night it's eleven o'clock. I'm going out to do a hit for News Nation, and there are two women who have been perhaps enjoying some responsibly sourced agave-based margaritas, and they're talking to each other about colonialism and capitalism and the interplay between the two of them. They were two white women, of course, walking down the street, loudly uh, talking about all of these Did things. this happen to you? Yeah, yeah, okay. this is last night. And I'm like in a bow tie and a blue blazer. Was it me? Do, 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 no, yeah, oh. <laughs> you, would have, you would have crossed the street and slapped them both. Okay. Uh, because it was just such silly billy, like Washington Post, white lady, goofball stuff. And it's that kind of thinking that just 
write about the thing. Don't write about how you wish people felt about the thing. Just write about the thing. Come on. It's it's so amazing. It's like, yeah, I mean, I we also didn't care about a bull until pe- people started bringing it back on, onto our shores. Right. We're, we Americans. That is <clears throat> that is human nature. That's what right. it's called. And it's, it's also called human nature. It's, we're also allowed to care more about things that, af- that affect us and our country than we are about things that affect other people in other places. Can we talk about, so the, the monkeypox, it emerged at a, like, big sex orgy. Was it in Belgium? Two. One in Belgium, one in Spain. Okay. And then... and. NP, no, oh, no, no, it was the, the World CDC, Health, the, World the World Health, Health Organization. Organization, referred to it as a, what, what did they call it? Random event. A random event. <laughs> I bet they were random. I bet. I Filled bet, with random. I bet that it was exceedingly random. <laughs> oh, exceedingly so random. Okay, we are down to the bottom of our front page. The last item, which was Dylan Byers, media reporter at Puck, obtained a very important memo from NPR. You have to read it. I will. A mask memo from NPR. They're all required to wear masks, but the memo reads as follows. And again, hat tip to Dylan Byers. Safety protocol reminders and tips. Enforcement underlined. We have asked on-site supervisors to remind staff of the masking requirements when needed. Masking is still required unless recording alone in a studio, working alone in an office with the door closed, or actively eating or drinking, and actively does not mean occasionally drinking from a water bottle. Any extremely rare exceptions to these rules need advance approval from the CMT. If you notice someone has forgotten their mask, you might tell them, hey, you forgot your mask. It's not actually helping the it's person. It's actually helping it's, the it's, per- ask, it's actually helping the person to be reminded. Nobody is intentionally trying to evade the rules. And if you are reminded to wear your mask, say, thank you. <laughs> Alternatively, <laughs> let your supervisor know and they can remind that person. You can also share an anonymous concern via the ethics point system, via a phone number, which is provided, or blank an email, and HR will address your concern promptly, but that's not the best option for an immediate fix. Please note that failure to comply with our masking requirement may lead to disciplinary action up to and including termination. Then, then you report the evildoers to the correct authorities. You are helping them with their re-education. I like that they tell them what to say. Both when you tell someone to put on a mask and when you are told to put on your mask. Um, oh, my God. is like has to be the worst workplace in I'd, in all of Washington, D.C. Oh, that's a, talk about a high bar. The worst workplace. Oh, the, the, have you ever have you met? The, you think that's. Colin, you, you actually would fit in perfectly in your outfit. Oh, brutal. That was a cruel burn. Colin. And I admire Colin you. Colin would fit in so good that shirt, in his outfit. That shirt, actually, you get that shirt when you get hired at NPR. Yeah. They immediately <laughs> give you, they give you that shirt. That and a pair of Birkenstocks and wool socks. So, I, I think, first of all, Sheila, <laughs> if, would you rather work at NPR or work for Sheila Jackson Lee? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, so there's a lot, I'm just saying, there's a lot of bad jobs in Washington, D.C. And I also want to say that NPR is totally within its rights to have rule to require masking. Do what you want to do. It's your business. If that's what it's your it's your enterprise. If that's what you want to do, do it. What is crazy here is the idea of having a hotline to <laughs> snitch on your fellow employees. It's really East and Germany. It is totally Stasi, and I mean the first graph, whatever. But this stuff about you know the script for how you should tell them what to do. <laughs> And then, and how to respond when you're told. And the, and this uh, just I. Chris, the, you should use this for my foot tapping, <laughs> and I'll respond. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but but the, but this phrase the, about they're trying to evade the rules. You you can also so you have an anonymous tip line. But what is the line? You are you are. It is actually helping the person that you are doing is you're snitching them out or bullying them in the hallways to do these things. <laughs> and what like. Don't do that, right? Like, don't don't make don't turn the employees on each other with snitch lines, please. It's helping them to get them terminated from their job. Right. That's actually super helpful. They're learning a large a lar- a larger lesson, larger lessons. So awesome. Okay, it is time for our obsessions, where we are going to break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. 
My obsession, I was obsessed with this last week, but then the Washington Post went back to the well, was Elise Stefanik had a Facebook ad in 2021, and it was about the Democrats trying to provide a pathway to citizenship for 11 million illegal immigrants, which she's against, and the Facebook ad was about this. And so they tried to say that she was basically, you know, partly responsible for what the Buffalo shooter did, which was the last mass shooting we had, you know, two days ago before the Texas shooting. And so I thought that was horrible. But then they went back to the well and the headline earlier this week was Stefanik echoed great replacement theory, but firms kept donating. And we'll link this piece in our show notes. But, you know, I know political activism when I see it. You know, this is the old, some of my best friends are political activists. Mm-hmm. This this piece, it names and shames corporations and their CEOs who donate to Elise Stefanik and the amount of money that they give links them to this, you know, abhorrent racist theory. And the goal is obviously to cut off the corporate spigot to Elise Stefanik. Uh, This is political activism masquerading as journalism. And in fact, it is exactly what the former Think Progress editor, Judd Legum, does at his Substack, where he's totally open about his views and biases and uses journalism to advance his political activism. His Substack, I forget what it's called, but it's quite good, actually. Uh, Judd Legum, Popular Information. And this is literally exactly what he does. He goes after corporate America for donating to the January 6th people and politicians who, you know, wouldn't concede that Biden won the election, etc. What drives me up the wall about the Post is pretending that this is unbiased journalism. I think the initial link to Stef- look, Elise Stefanik is thirsty and calling people pedos and stuff is pretty indicative of, of where she's going. And by the way, if I'm I w- a fan of Elise and by the way, if I was Kevin McCarthy, I would be watching her as the one who was going to knock me off at the end because her, she is, she is hungry, 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 hungry. And by the way, since when does the post take issue with an ambitious young woman? Oh, no, um, no, oh, no, now. but really like she's a 37 or 38 year old ambitious woman and like they would only have a problem with that if the person's on the right. I don't know if that's Um, true. I don't know if that's true. I don't think she should get special status because of her gender. She shouldn't get special status at all but like they would only go on the attack. I don't know that that's true. Uh, I totally believe that's true. But in the case of this article I will say this. I I think the the link to I think the link to Stefanik's 2018 ad. uh, It was 2021. Oh. Okay. It came when New York <clears throat> City gave yeah, yeah, yeah. non-citizens the right to vote in elections. So this is, and this is where the ad says, like a permanent radical Democrats are planning their most yeah. aggressive move yet: a permanent election insurrection. Their plan to grant amnesty to 11 million illegal immigrants will overthrow our current electorate and create a permanent liberal majority in Washington. Linking that to the Buffalo shooter, pretty thin. I think, and there may be more here that I'm not aware of, but I think pretty thin. What I think is interesting in this piece and what I found what I found good about it was they went to these companies that took these radical pledges on racial justice that committed all of this money and got all of this favorable coverage and all of this favorable treatment on what they're going to do on race matters in the in the post George Floyd moment. And all of that stuff. And the Post went to them and said this stuff and said, so you're giving money to Elise Stefanik. Are you cool with that? And this is something that we explored with the Roe v. Wade coverage, where the companies that had taken bold stands, oh, it was the online, it was the online gamers or the the the, the gaming companies who had, ta- the Post did this with the gaming companies, right. where they were like, okay, well, you were pro- Black Lives Matter, where are you on row? Right, exactly. And they're like, well, we don't really want to talk about that. We wanted to talk about the other thing. And I think what this article points to, I, I certainly take the criticism about the how much Stefanik has to do. The, the causal connection between Stefanik and the shooting, yes. But on the question of these companies took these pledges, 
what is that what did that really mean and are they going to be accountable for that going forward i think is actually part of how companies end up getting back out of the politics business because of the realization we heard it from netflix we heard it from other people you weigh in on one of these things right you start going down the path on one of these things then you're going to have to then you're going to stop being a company and start being a political entity and that is uh, i think you're mixing two separate things I think you're mixing companies making statements on controversial political issues and companies giving to candidates. One is a new thing and one is something they've always done. Right. Uh, they're taking issue with like companies giving money to candidates. They've always done that. Right. But, and what I'm saying is these companies wanted all of the liberal love, right, for what they said in the wake of George Floyd and their commitments to Black Lives Matter and their financial support for these groups. And they got really political on this. And now when those same groups that they're supporting are coming after Stefanik and while the same people that the, 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 the people that they allied themselves with are coming after Stefanik, they're still giving money to Stefanik. I'm not saying they shouldn't be giving money to Stefanik. I'm just saying that these companies are full of crap. They're full of it. And I look forward to the post coverage of Amazon's giving, you know, when it's Speaker Stefanik or <laughs> as Kevin McCarthy's lifeless body, Kevin McCarthy's lifeless body out in the Speaker's lobby. Okay, so my obsession is when I first read this piece, it seemed so obvious, and then I couldn't get out of I couldn't get it out of my head. It's at Columbia Journalism Review headline: What is political writing for? Subhead: Morsels of rage and misery don't have much effect, but they do feed an online writing economy. And I'm going to probably mispronounce this person's name, and I apologize in advance, but it is Osita Nuravo. Nuravo. Sorry, I'm sorry. You can feel free to call me Chris Steerwalt. But the the piece is, so it's from a liberal, uh, progressive liberal, get the, the a web-first staff writer at The New Yorker and The New Republic, so the, the, identifying themselves on the left side, but talking about how for all of the leftward, and you could you could write the same piece from the right, for all of the leftward radicalization in online forums and all of the these things, they have nothing to show for it. And so you, you got all of these writers to line up on the progressive side and push harder and harder and harder. The so here's the here's another quote. But at the federal level, where most of our energy and attention is spent, national political commentators have succeeded mostly in encouraging an impressive share of democratic political elites, activists, and policy professionals to engage with important policy ideas that are unlikely to pass Congress. And the success progressives have seen so far during the Biden administration can probably be credited less to posts and tweets than to the work of progressive policy researchers, academics, and advocacy groups which policymakers can access directly without journalists as their explainers and intermediaries. This is true also on the right. And I just wanted this, this is the, the graph that really stayed with me. Writers ought to be given the time, space, and opportunity to say not the first, second, or even third thing to come to mind, but maybe the fourth, a chance to write at an angle or with prose that challenges or surprises. If persuasive writing has any real independent power at all, we'll likely find it in larger arguments with larger stakes. Work from writers who break the rhythms of our most intractable debates by slowing down to gather context from historical material, scholarship, and yes, reporting. And th this piece is a lament. It's so good. It's a lament about we got the internet. We finally had unlimited space to write about politics and political philosophy and our ideas. And what did we do with it? We all write the same dumb thing, right? We are like, you know, my joke about political coverage is like kids playing soccer. Have you ever watched little kids play soccer? Crowding around the ball. They just, the ball goes here and they cluster up and then they run over the ball and then the ball squirts out and it goes that direction and they all go that way. So we have this historically, this, this amazing moment where we're able to say and do whatever we want. And so much of the political journalism and writing and opinion writing all goes to the same place and talks about the same stories because that's what the profit motive says because you want to go to the thing that is in the discussion and that generates the heat, not necessarily the light. And I have always hated following the crowd. 
Yeah. And I just, I, re- I really admire the, the piece here. Very well done. And I would just encourage, you know, anybody. This is why I love the dispatch. This is why you, your team at the Beacon, you can do what you want, right? It's the internet. You're not, there's no trees to cut down. Go write what you want to write about. Go where you want to go. Do what you want to do. Be a little more creative. Uh, you might be surprised that the audience will follow you. Chris, it is my favorite time of the week. Where we do reader mail. Let's do it. And our first note is from Morgan, who writes, Hey, Eliana. For starters, anytime Chris says the words El Rechos in the intro, I find it oddly <laughs> cathartic. That little addition makes me feel so giddy and comforted. I'm a big fan of the podcast and have been listening to Chris's commentary and insightful thoughts since I was in college, and he was recording a podcast with Dana Perino. As o- I have always really appreci- appreciated his thoughts on current events, and now enjoy hearing the two of you go back and forth. In a recent episode, Chris mentioned that he has a favorite president but did not say a name. Could he please expand on this? Or maybe he has multiple favorites. Thank you so much for all the perspective you guys bring and know that you have a zillennial fan who has been listening listening during her work shit, shifts. Much appreciated, Morgan. Well, Morgan, you asked and Chris shall answer. Zillennial? Is that a... Zillennial. Gen Z. I thought that was a drug. I thought that was for the treatment of restless leg syndrome. Zillennial sounds I'm definitely. I'm going to be taking Zillennial uh, for my <laughs> leg shaking over here. Well, Morgan, I think what you, I hope what you heard me say, well, my favorite, the, I don't want to get all Harry Jaffa down here. I'm not, I'm not trying to make this a West Coast Straussian podcast. The greatest American president is Abraham Lincoln, period. George Washington created the presidency. It was created for him. He defined it, and he is the uh, he is the model to which we strive. So he's sort of like in he's a the cl- platonic form. Yeah, he he is the platonic form. He is in a cl- he, he he is above the question. But Lincoln is the is the dude, dude. He's got the he's got the thing. Now, my favorite president of the twentieth century, which I often point out, is Calvin Coolidge the man and the Republican, the last time the Republicans nominated a conservative for 40 years, Herbert Hoover was some sort of technocratic progressive. Calvin Coolidge, I, I highly recommend, Morgan, if you're looking for something else to listen to on your work shift, Amity Schley's wonderful biography of Calvin Coolidge. It's great. And I love the dude. Would that we could have an army of Coolidge's rise up in this country and strive for indifference and quiet resolve. Chris, our second note is from Christine. Mm -hmm. I love everybody writing Chris with questions and then I just get to pass them along. (laughs) It's wonderful. Please continue to write Mm -hmm. Chris with questions Mm -hmm. from Christine. Chris, I love you. Good way to start. But why is Tucker Carlson anti-immigrant? Isn't he a controlled and legal immigration proponent? Chris, I have a feeling that you and Tucker Carlson would answer this question differently. I don't know. I mean, I, I have not followed. He's He's been on something of a journey. I do not closely track what his immigration position is. But I do, I, and I may be wrong about this, but I think he is against immigration, right? Are you asking the question? Yeah, I don't you? know. Yeah, well, I'm asking you. I, I Given... What he has said about the effects on... I think Tucker's answer would be that he is for control. It would be exactly as Christine says. That said, I think that many of his offhand comments have been anti-immigrant. And what comes to mind is he complained in an article in The Atlantic that we will link that immigrants litter too much. And I think when you make like derisive comments, derisive, how do you say that word? Derisive. Derisive. Yeah. It certainly would lead the audience to think that while you say, yes, I'm a proponent of controlled immigration, and I actually am a proponent of that, that actually you are anti-immigrant. Yeah, I I, I don't know. And if I said that, I, I, I don't know what it was exactly that I said. But Carlson's position on immigration seems to be that the the Democrats are bringing in low income, I- impoverished residents of Latin America into the United States, and that they're fundamentally trying to change America, and that our culture is being wiped out, and all of that stuff. I don't know 
what he thinks about immigration in general. I don't actually care, but I do think that the the message, look, there are people that I, Tom Cotton, I think I mentioned last week, yes. but always comes to the fore is a guy who makes it clear, pro-immigration, because by the way, in the United States, we don't have enough kids, though congratulations to Americans for having a bunch of kids after the pandemic. Eliana, you did your part to our first growth in fertility rates in the U.S. in a long time. Well done, bored people at home. So that's good. But the the United States of America needs like a million legal immigrants every year just to to tread water on things like Social Security and, and to deal with our, our population decline to offset the decline population in the in the native born population. So Tom Cotton and others who say we want to enforce immigration rules or even oppose uh, amnesty or whatever, but still have to point out, and I think that's that's the obligation in this discussion, is if you want there's a consensus among the American people about what about 65-70% about what Americans want on this question. Polls are are cons- very consistent. They want Strict enforcement of existing immigration laws combined with a pathway to citizenship for those who are here illegally. That's what people want. I don't know where Tucker Carlson falls on that, but I would agree with you that the the, the rhetoric overall does not does not match up with a pro-immigrant, but with restrictions, it comes up with a, a different kind of thing. But I don't know. Now, it is time for Chris's favorite section of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice in our favorite items. But, Chris, this week I have not one but two favorites. Oh, you're cheating. I you see. You lead me by example. Well, this was actually <laughs> sent in by a subscriber to the Starwaltism's political note at El Dispacho. And here is this wonderful piece in Smithsonian Magazine. This small town newspaper is the last of its kind. The, and I think it's Sagush. I hope it's Sagush, S-A-G-U-A-C-H-E. The Sagush Crescent, a weekly in a Colorado hamlet, still prints on the 19th century technology known as linotype. And it is, is the, the paper is, of course, beautiful. And it is where you're moving whole chunks of type around. If you think about like a old, an old-timey newspaper, how the, the, what they're doing is they're casting each column on its own, and then arranging those metal blocks in a into a plate that then they, you know, vise together and then print with, and it looks awesome. And I'm just, it's so cool, and I want a copy, and way to go. And we will like that, of course. Chris, okay, I have two favorite items. Okay. They both happen to relate to style. <laughs> a lot of my favorite items are like style and dress, the first one is the headline. It's a Wall Street Journal article, and we talked about how I'm not really following the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial. Oh, dear. But the journal headline is, in the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial, every detail is scrutinized on TikTok, even her braids. And it's about how Amber Heard is her hairstyle for this trial. It's like this very homespun Laura Ingalls Wilder you know, braids because she's trying to come across as super wholesome. Yeah, yeah. And the quote is, along with fodder, such as the litigants' courtroom beverages and their every expression, their hairstyles are of public interest. It's like the O.J. Simpson trial, but with technology, said Autumn Whitbeck, a Utah stay-at-home mother, attempting to explain the fervent interest in the trial. And I remembered how, you know, she, of course, she's trying to come across as, like, super wholesome is the right word yeah. homespun and do you remember in, in oj when he had to bring the jury to his house he like put on he put he took down everything he had in his house and put up all this african art and stuff i like wanted, it because yeah. black jury yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought you were gonna go to when marcia clark got a perm remember uh, that so good yes 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 i noticed that the revenge of the amber heard stands in the media this week and last week Johnny Depp had gotten all this favorable coverage and everything else. And then the Amber Heard, and I, I'm i going to say it's Gail Collins. It may not have been Gail Collins. I forget who wrote the piece. But a Gail Collins type wrote this piece that was like basically Me Too is over if Amber Heard loses this trial and the, the way that Amber Heard is being treated. And I'm like, can we just hold celebrities in contempt? Isn't that isn't that okay for us to just look at these people, these ridiculous bed-pooping Dope fuel. Like, can't we just look at these ridiculous people and Johnny Depp with the hairstyle 
of a, a cocaine dealer who moonlights. His at, face is real beat up. A, he, a, a Johnny Depp, whose hairstyle looks like a, con, a cocaine dealer moonlighting as a restaurant, as a, as a waiter in a high-end Italian restaurant. And these ridiculous people with their ridiculous lawsuits, can't we just have contempt for everyone? Wouldn't it be okay just to hold these people in contempt? I don't know. Okay, my second one is I want to pull the headline up, but it's about John Fetterman, who's the Democratic uh, Senate nominee in Pennsylvania. Oh, in Pennsylvania, and he's like seven feet tall, and Six, he wears. Nine. Okay, it's John Fetterman and the remaking of Political Image, and all he ever wears is a sweatshirt and shorts below his knees and black sneakers. Yep, and uh, the quotes are as follows: After all. Not for Mr. Fetterman, the bland navy suit, white shirt, and red or blue tie that had that has been de rigueur for the political class for decades, or not for him most of the time. In 2020, he confirmed via Twitter that he had only one suit, a single-breasted dark number that he wore for special occasions, like legal weed, lurch-themed Halloween pictures, and so they let me in the PA Senate. Instead, his usual uniform involves a hoodie and shorts, often by Carhartt and Dickies, the Ur-American workwear brands beloved of blue-collar voters and hipsters. He called Carhartt and Shorts, quote, Western PA business casual on Twitter. He wears them in pretty much every context he can. I loved it. Yeah, and who wrote the piece? Vanessa Friedman. All right, there you go. Um, we will put the link in the show notes. Any other comments before we sign off? Just general excellence. I would just okay. encourage everyone on to general excellence. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about or a question for Chris about his favorite president, pastry, or otherwise, or email Eliana, us. Or Eliana. Email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review at least. Just search for Wretches.